Well, good to see everybody. Uh, good to be here at the Neighborhood Church. Last week, uh, well, the last two weeks, Pastor Kathy did an excellent job reflecting on their travels to the Holy Land, and I really, really loved that reminder last week that we would be covered in the dust of our rabbi, our teacher. And uh, I loved hearing that when Brendan Vaughn came in at the beginning of the service last week, he saw that basket that she had right here full of those vials of sand from the Sea of Galilee from their beaches. And uh, Brendan was overheard saying, oh, there are crafts tonight, so it must be Pastor Kathy that's preaching uh, and I love that like people know that I'm preaching because there's nothing special or fancy about it. So I thought today that I would bring a little visual aid, and that is my beautiful new electric guitar, and more on that in a minute. For now, I would love to read to you a passage from, okay, Mark, all right. Uh, I'm not going to do it again now. I'd love to read a passage from Luke chapter 11, verses 1 to 4. It's on the screen if you want to follow along silently. One day Jesus was praying in a certain place. And when he finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray, just as John taught his disciples. So Jesus said to them, when you pray, say, Father, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Give us each day our daily bread. Forgive us our sins, for we also forgive everyone who sins against us. And lead us not into temptation. This is the word of God for the people of God, and we say, thanks be to God. So this is known as the Lord's Prayer. If you grew up in Catholic circles, you know it as the Our Father. So we just read Luke's version and that's the abridged, condensed version. So I'm going to cheat a little bit and refer tonight to Matthew's version. That's in Matthew chapter 6, and he gives us the fuller line, Our Father who art in where? Heaven. But the reason I picked the Luke passage to launch us into a new series for the summer is for this phrase, Lord, teach us to pray. If you flip over to Matthew chapter 6, where you get the expanded version, the unabridged director's cut of the Jesus model prayer, Our Father, you see a different setting for the same teaching. But in this setting, we have Jesus doing what he often did in Luke's gospel, and that is praying. And then you had the disciple come to him and say, hey, um, we see you praying a lot. Lord, would you teach us how to pray also? Because John teaches his disciples, and we think we ought to know what you're about. And I kind of feel like we're in a season as a church where I would love for us to refocus and to learn again together how to pray. So we're starting this new series, Lord, Teach Us to Pray. And each week, Lord willing, we're going to focus on each line of the prayer, and we're also going to focus on different aspects of prayer. We're going to get a few more little insights, perhaps. You might get a few new ways to kind of step into prayer, a new invitation, new ways of thinking and trying it yourself. But it's all in an effort to learn how to pray by looking to Jesus, who gave us this prayer. So tonight... We're focusing really on that word Father. 
Of course, Matthew gives us the fuller director's cut, Our Father Who Art in Heaven. But we're going to basically explore prayer in its simplest form as a foundation. And that's where we're headed tonight. So the big idea that we're going to see, all summed up in that little word Jesus taught us to pray, Father, we're going to see that prayer is the means of growing in relationship and partnership with God. Everyone say relationship and partnership. Those are the two big umbrellas that we're going to be exploring tonight. Prayer is the means of growing in relationship and partnership with God. And that's all in this foundational word Jesus taught us to pray, Father. But before we get to that relationship and partnership aspect, because this is our first week, I want to do two quick things. The first is why have a series on prayer? And then the second thing I want to do before we get into it is a few disclaimers. So first, the question, why this series on prayer? In April, y'all remember when we had Jim Pace from the Ecclesia Network come by? We're part of that relational uh, network of churches called Ecclesia. Jim Pace came from Virginia, and one of the things he did on behalf of Ecclesia was to do a church-wide assessment. We asked for them to do that. They didn't say, hey, we need to make sure you're a real church. No, what the church assessment is, is he came in to just pop the hood and run a diagnostic check on the culture and our way of being and doing in the church. We're about two and a half years old, and I figured what a great time while the cement is still a little bit wet to kind of take a look at what we're up to, but also to look ahead towards some next steps. So he spent a day with our leaders in addition to interviewing 42 of you, which is crazy. I I, I feel like I do an okay job having coffees with you, but I don't know if I could do 42 sit-downs in the span of seven days, but Jim did. He also spent some time with our leaders. And the question he posed to our leaders is this. Do you believe the Holy Spirit wants to break through in the neighborhood church and in the neighborhood surrounding it? Do you believe that the Holy Spirit genuinely wants to break through? And then he said, are you banking on it? Are you expecting it? And so I'm really interested to like answer this question in this room full of leaders because part of my glass half full mindset is going, well, man, I really want him to, but I fear that I'm going to mess it up. Because I'm a pastor, and I don't pray hard enough, I don't pray well enough, and I fear like I'm going to miss it. This is what's going on in my head. Now, thankfully, your leaders, your group leaders, your deacons are awesome because they start sprouting up in this room, and they're saying, yes, we have this sense, and we're excited that there's something incredible around the corner. We don't know what it's going to look like, but we are banking and expecting for God to bring some breakthrough. And so I was super encouraged by that. But I had this sense, after I kind of repented of my negativity, I sensed this invitation to say, until that moment or season, how can we wait in prayer to to where we can actually receive what God has for us with open arms? Because I'm convinced that there will be no breakthrough or power or growth, whether numerically or in depth, without prayer. Because prayer has this way of posturing our hearts and reprioritizing how we look at the world to see it through God's eyes and with God's power. Prayer has this way of 
reorienting us to all that God is and all that God does. And it is nowhere more synthesized than in the prayer that Jesus taught us to pray. So I want to invite you into this season, this summer, to pray with me and with Pastor Kathy and with Pastor Bud and with these leaders and with each other. Would you pray some big prayers with us? Because there will be no breakthrough, I believe, without an expectant season of prayer to receive what God has for us. And we might explore some ways to get together to pray more and more, not only in your discipleship groups, but maybe just having some impromptu nights around the table at some of our houses to really pray and just to wait well. So that's the first bit before we get into this idea of partnership and relationship. The second thing I said I wanted to do this first evening of Lord Teach Us to Pray is a few disclaimers. Because you might be like me, a glass half empty person when it comes to your spiritual life. And I think nothing kind of brings to the surface some of our insecurities than prayer. And here's what I mean by that. Prayer is one of those things in our life that can be a source of obligation. Do you know what I mean? Obligation Some of you might be thinking, and it's okay if you're thinking this, oh great, here's a teaching series where Adam and Kathy are just going to take this big bucket and they're just going to empty it out on us and say, be more spiritual and do this or else, do this, do this, do this. If you're not doing this, you're not doing it right. And so you can be like me and you can hear some of these things and then put it on a spiritual to-do list and what happens is you might do some of these things out of obligation, but obligation will never change your heart. Are you hearing me? I've lived too much of my Christian life trying to put together a list of things to please God when I forget that God is already pleased with me. That's why tonight we're talking about this foundation of what does it mean to pray, Father, We're going to see in a little bit, to grow in that relationship, you're going to see that you don't have to go and do what's already done is the Father has given the world for you. He loves you, not the six-month more mature version of yourself after this series, Lord, teach us to pray. Are you listening? So that's my disclaimer number one. Disclaimer number two, sometimes prayer is one of those things in life that can be a sort of source of guilt, okay? So if you put it on your spiritual to-do list and you start to not do those things, then you get to the next level, which is a source of guilt. I'm not doing it right or I'm not doing it enough. Can I confess some real talk again? I have a coach from the Ecclesia Network named J.R. Briggs. We were talking about this. Adam, what are some invitations you sense in your life right now? It's like, well, we're doing this group sabbatical. I'm looking ahead to kind of a busy summer, so I kind of feel like I need to go and pray at this Catholic church that Bud, Kathy, and I meet at every week, like every day for an hour. And he says, awesome. And I said, what? And he goes, man, like, are you kind of signing up for a marathon after you hadn't been running? And I think he's okay with me saying that because he's saying that about me, and he was checking my heart. Because sometimes that's from a place of guilt where I'm like, you know, I, I am trying to pray every day. I'm praying with him. And, you know, that, that became an obligation. And he says, the reason why I, I want you to think about that and check that is because when you begin to not do that, it can become a source of guilt and defeat. And then that same afternoon, I came across this 
thought from Dallas Willard, who's one of the most influential uh, authors on spiritual formation and philosophy that, uh, that I've ever read. And he died just a few years ago, but uh, his stuff is incredible. He says this, Don't seek to develop a prayer life. Seek a praying life. A prayer life is a segmented time for prayer. You'll end up feeling guilty that you don't spend more time in prayer. Eventually, you'll probably feel defeated and then you'll give up. But a praying life is a life that is saturated with prayerfulness. You seek to do all that you do with the Lord. So when I'm talking about this disclaimer of don't let this be a source of guilt for you, a lot of times the guilt comes because we have a bucket over here and it's called our quiet time, our devotional, our whatever you want to call it. We put it in the bucket and let me tell you, the bucket is not bad. I think to be a disciple of Jesus is to be with Jesus, to learn from Jesus how to live like Jesus. So at some point in your life, you should be creating space, which is one of our core practices, to be with Jesus. And for many of you, that looks like your designated time of prayer, okay? But what Dallas Willard is saying, don't just settle for checking off the list some bucket of your prayer life. Because Here's why. You have a work life, a financial life, and I've got a friend life, I've got a family life, I've got a hobby life, and then over here I've got a prayer life, and then I've got a church life, and the problem is you have a life. So what Dallas Willard is saying, over and beyond ticking off a box that becomes the gauge of your spiritual health, take the bucket and pour it over every other bucket of your life and take God with you to work. And take God with you into this meeting with your friends and coworkers and family and neighborhood. Let God's prayer life be one that is saturated every little nook and cranny of your life, not just one compartment. So he's saying this is a praying life. This is an ongoing, I'm doing this with you, God, and this is what we're hoping to explore in this series. And the final disclaimer I'll give you is not just a source of obligation, a source of guilt, but a source of confusion. Because you have all experienced the dreaded, unanswered prayer. You've also all experienced the phenomenon of, okay, am I just talking to myself? Because prayer is mysterious. And we could spend our whole life exploring what Dallas Willard calls a praying life, trying to get this way of growing in relationship and partnership with God in every area of our life. We could spend a whole life trying to plumb its depths and sort it out, how to, how to listen to and speak to the creator of the universe. There's a mystery but then sometimes we can be so disconnected and sometimes we have so many questions like, are you there? Are you listening? And here's the problem. Those questions are okay because it's part of being human and trying to grasp at the infinite. But the problem comes when those questions prevent us from trying.
The other thing is I think our culture is so results-driven that when we don't get what we want, we throw the whole baby out with the bathwater. But I want to tell you, I have this hunch because of this word Father that Jesus begins this prayer with, because it's rooted in a relationship and a partnership, I don't think any prayer is wasted. I have this hunch because of a good father who loves to listen to his children. Listen to this and tell me if it's crazy. I have this hunch that every single prayer releases some kingdom energy into the world. And I don't want you to think that that's some new age, speak it, name it, and claim it, or speaking my vibes into the universe. I I believe that because we are rooted in this relationship with God our Father who loves us and listens to us, even in our questions and ramblings and doubts, there is kingdom energy released into the world because in Romans chapter 8, Paul says this profound and deeply mysterious statement that when we do not know how to pray, or listen, when we don't pray as we ought, the Spirit who is within us with groanings too deep for words is groaning and interceding for us. No prayer is wasted. Don't let these disclaimers, don't let these questions prevent you from trying to enter in into the mystery. And it all starts on this bare-bottom, bedrock foundation of the relationship that Jesus opens up to us by starting his prayer by saying, Father, or our Father in heaven. This is a game-changer. And this is where we're going to spend the rest of our time. Prayer is the means of growing in relationship and partnership with God. There is always something deeper going on. Would we wade into the depths of this prayer? And Jesus is going to help us to that end. The truth is, I need help. And when I think about prayer, I think about guitar. Aha, there it is. Got it? I almost didn't bring it. Here's why I think about prayer and guitar. When I was 13 years old, my other grandfather, the grandfather that's not here, gave all of us four cousins. We had four cousins on my mom's side, a special birthday present, okay? So when it was my 13th birthday, I said, I want an electric guitar. And so I was hoping and expecting and praying for a guitar. And then my 13th birthday rolls around, and then you do the thing where you try to play it off, but you see that big box in the corner, and you know what it is. You just try to be cool and like open up the socks and be like, thanks, thanks. But you're just side-eyeing that thing that you wanted and know that you got because it's hard to hide a bike or an electric guitar or a pony or whatever. So I'm biding my time, but I'm so excited to open up my first guitar. And so I go and rip open the paper, and you peel off the plastic, and here is this like beginner version of a black Fender Stratocaster. It lives in my parents' house. I don't have it, and I think this one's prettier, but I love that first guitar that I got. And I opened it up, and then <laughs> I have very little memory of most of my birthdays, but I will never forget this 13th birthday opening up this guitar. Because then everybody gathers around and they say, play us something. And do you want to know when the first time I ever held a guitar was? That moment on my 13th birthday. And so I have this instant like power down, like I feel like my brain went into sleep saver, screen saver mode, and I just started to power down because I had no idea like even how to hold it. And so I pick it up and I just kind of go like... 
And I'm just kind of strumming this horrible thing. And I realize I don't know what I'm doing. And I went from super excited and look at all the possibilities before me. I can finally play like Jimmy Page in Led Zeppelin. For some reason, I was major into classic rock then, like Jimmy Page and all this. And so I was like, man, that's going to be me. And then I'm over here doing this. And so why I think about this with my prayer life is because I've had this experience in which I feel like I'm this Christian and I'm trying to grow in my faith. And then I sit down to pray and then it feels like I'm picking up a guitar for the first time and I've had no idea where or what or how or what. And I feel like a lot of times what we do, and I'm, I'm afraid that I'm guilty of it, is we take these new disciples, these new apprentices of Jesus, and instead of uh, hearing them say, Lord, teach us to pray, or friend, mentor, pastor, group leader, teach me to pray, we just say, go figure it out. And we hand them a guitar, we tell them to go back in the corner, and what happens is they begin to make some kind of something out of it. They might pick up a few things, but ultimately they see, well, this is really no use, and so they put it in the corner, like your friend in college that like got a guitar but hasn't touched it in 20 years and I think sometimes prayer can be like that and so what I love about what we just read is this Jesus gives his disciples sheet music when the disciples saw Jesus they caught a vision and they're like I he's got something in a relationship and a way of being and living and peace and love and joy. And I believe they started to get a sense that it was because, as Luke tells us elsewhere in his gospel, Jesus regularly withdrew to lonely places to pray. And then Jesus, look, would bring his disciples with him to rest and pray. So I believe they started connecting the dots to say that Jesus' praying life, in which every bit of Jesus' life was saturated with this communion with Father, they began to say, we want in on that. It's like they saw Jimmy Page, the master, shredding, and they said, we want in on that. But Jesus didn't just hand him a guitar and say, go figure it out. With all the questions that Jesus asked, and a few sermons ago I mentioned this, there's like over 300 questions asked of Jesus. Jesus answered eight of them. And I know this isn't really exactly a question, but it's a direct request, and Jesus doesn't do this. He doesn't laugh at them and say, dude, you've been with me how long? And here's the other thing. So many disciples or new Christians, like, let's never be a church that laughs at people asking these questions. One of our big prayers is that we would have more new Christians. I love when people come and visit. We had an impromptu garage sale day. We talked to like 50 neighbors. Some of them, uh, w- you know, when they ask what I do for a living, they ask me about church and whatever, and like they would love to visit, but they're also connected to other churches. And we say, God bless you. That's awesome. Come anytime. But what we long for is the people that are done with church or have never been in church because we want to connect them to the kingdom of God and find transformation in life. And so when the Holy Spirit brings these new people that we are going out to see and seek, may we never be people that laugh or expect. Can I say this? Can we not assume they know? Our culture has a good idea, right? And you still hear politicians saying Judeo-Christian values. The truth is our nation is not a Christian nation because Christian nations don't exist. 
There are Christians within nations that pray and move and work for the kingdom that is subverting and overtaking the whole world, which is also what Jesus taught us to pray. See week three of this series. But may we never assume they've figured it out. May we be people who make disciples, as Kathy was speaking about and praying about during our scripture reading and prayer. Jesus doesn't laugh at them. You know what else he doesn't do? He doesn't over-spiritualize it. This is the thing that I feel like I'm guilty. We have a streak of spiritual formation. We take it very seriously, this idea of being with Jesus and rhythm of life and all these things. I don't want to overcomplicate it. And that's why we've got to go back to that foundation. And Jesus gives us this sheet music. And what I love about this prayer is this. It's simple enough to memorize. It's expansive enough to cover all the bases of the simplest necessities like daily bread and the biggest things like global renewal for the kingdom to come and the will to be done on earth as it is in heaven. It's expansive. It's also mysterious. We've spoken to that. It's mysterious enough to transform you and transform the world. There's a document called the Didache that came in the second generation of Christians. So after Jesus, it's not in the Bible, but it's this early Christian document that circulated among the churches. And within that document, they were instructing the first and second generation of churches to pray this prayer three times a day. This is a kind of prayer that is mysterious and deep enough to where you can pray it three times a day, every day, for the rest of your life, and never really plumb its depths, and never really move on from it, and never really get the A plus and go to the next grade, because it's just something about it. And one of the things I think we'll do, Lord willing, maybe at the end of the summer, our last series, we're going to actually practice a lot of this stuff. We're going to see how we can take each line of this prayer And we can give it space underneath because these really form these umbrellas of all the kinds of ways of praying you'd ever need. The gimme, gimme, gimme prayer. Y'all pray that? I pray it all the time. Or how about the thank you, thank you, thank you prayer? It gives space for all of it. The forgive me, forgive me, forgive me prayer. You can never plumb its depths. It's deep enough you'd never move on from it. So Jesus, in that first line, gives us that foundation that we never move on from either. And that is that relationship that we have with him as father. So first, that word relationship. Calling God father wasn't necessarily Jesus' invention. If y'all look at Exodus chapter 4, we see it in the earliest stages of God getting to know a people named Israel. The problem was Israel was enslaved. And so God is speaking to Moses, and he says, here's what you need to go tell Pharaoh. Y'all all know what? Let my what? People go? But in Exodus chapter 4, God says, go tell Pharaoh this. Basically, God is our father, and we are his firstborn son. So what he's in essence to say to Pharaoh is this. We aren't slaves. We are sons of the Most High God. And he goes into Pharaoh's court to show him that God means business, and he's saying, no, 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 you've mistaken our identity. And I think when it comes to prayer, why Jesus tells us in this sheet music is a lot of times we've suppressed our true identity and we've distorted our purpose. We are free people who are children of God 
who are set out to declare his power and presence to the world. Maybe the reasons we struggle to pray is because we go off forgetting whose we are and whose we are is Father. And if he is our Father, what does that make us? His children. This is our true identity. This started at the beginning when God made us in his image in Genesis chapter 1. We are, there's something about us innately that reflects God's goodness. Before Genesis 3 and the bad news of really blowing it, you know what comes before the number 3? The number 1. God said, let us make humankind in our image. And in God's image, he made us. We want to go on and say, here's how terrible we are. No, the truth is we are not slaves. We are sons and daughters. So Jesus was picking up this idea of God being Father, but then he superimposes it on this new kingdom community that he's forming when he teaches us to pray, Father. That's what it means to grow in our relationship, to never lose sight of the fact that if he is Father, then we are his what? Children. We are his children. And Jesus had a beautiful sense of this. And one of the most impactful seasons and stories in my life was reflecting on the baptism of Jesus when he goes down at the very beginning of his ministry into the Jordan River where Kathy and Sid were not three weeks ago. And Jesus goes down into the water. And as he comes up, the Holy Spirit, like a dove, and she spoke to this a little bit last week, descended and alighted on Jesus. And it was discerned to be the Holy Spirit. Because John had been saying, he's the one that's going to baptize you with the Holy Spirit. All the prophecies said, he's going to be the one that brings the Spirit of God. And then this happens. The heavens seem to be wrenched open, and the Father in heaven speaks an audible word over Jesus in the Jordan and says what? This is my beloved Son, whom I love. With him I am well pleased. Let me ask you, how many sermons had Jesus preached in these Gospels? recorded thus far. Maybe he taught in the synagogue when he was 14, maybe a little bit because that's what men do in the Jewish culture. But I'm going to go with really none in his official ministry, so to speak. How many people had Jesus healed? How many things had Jesus done to earn God's favor? The answer is zero, nothing, and it didn't matter. Because he was a beloved son. And I believe that when Jesus went about the world and everybody calling him this, that, and the other. And when he goes into the courts at the end of his life and they're spitting on him and mocking him and beating him. I guarantee you in the deepest recesses of his heart and mind, he had these words echoing in his heart. This is my beloved son. And what would it look like for you? to pray this way, our Father, to sit with that prayer and to know beyond a shadow of the doubt that that is your first and foremost identity. I was speaking to somebody a couple weeks ago that is processing their calling in ministry. Right now they're doing a job they really dislike and this person's been calling me just on and off, kind of processing and thinking through this stuff. And I told them, you know, I did it backward. I went to seminary and I started working and I've been working in and around churches for like 15 years. And the problem is, is I got my, I answered the question, God, what do you want me to do? Before I answered the question, God, who do you want me to be? And I really believe 
that our being precedes our doing. And this is what happens in our culture, is everybody wants to know what do you do. When you go to a party and you meet somebody new, question two or three is what? Hey, what do you do? Because it'd be really weird for them to say, for you to say, I'm Adam and I'm a beloved son of the Father. Nice to meet you. And they'd say, goodbye. But the truth is, I really believe that this would be bad talk at a party, but it would be really good self-talk in the mirror as you go through your day to remind yourself that you're a beloved son, that you're a beloved daughter. Because when we get who we are right, the things that precede out of that doing come from a place where you say, the world may say this and I may think that, but what God thinks of me is what matters. The starting place of prayer, why Jesus prays, Father, and we're to pray the same, the starting place is to believe that this is true of you also. And until you can believe this as the foundation, I'm not sure the posture of the rest of it will be okay. We've got to start here. What does it mean to be a son What does it mean to be a daughter? I believe it means to be beloved children before all else. The first bit on your resume is beloved child. That is who you are and whose you are, our Father. He belongs to us and we belong to Him. Secondly, what does it mean to be a son or daughter of the Father in heaven? This is that partnership piece. To be apprentices, learning God's work, in the world. Because it's not just a call to relationship, it's a call to partnership, to be an apprentice. Do y'all know, of course, that people assume that Jesus was a carpenter. Now, do you know how many Bible verses in the Gospels speak of Jesus being a carpenter? Zero. But there are verses that say, isn't he the carpenter's son? Because we make that leap an assumption because in Jesus' day, the son apprenticed to do the father's work. So if Joseph was a carpenter, then Jesus learned the family business. In that patriarchal, male-dominated society, that meant the daughters, as soon as they could, began to do the household work of the mothers. They were apprentices to their father's. So when Jesus goes around in John chapter 5 saying this, Very truly I tell you, the Son can do nothing by Himself. He can do only what He sees His Father doing. Do you think He's talking about Joseph making a table? He's going around saying, I'm doing what my Father's doing. I'm apprenticing in the family business. And He keeps going. Because whatever the Father does, the Son also does. For the Father loves the Son and shows Him all He does. Now look, follow me. Jesus says, I'm the Father's apprentice. And then Jesus goes and calls who? Apprentices of Himself. And He says, welcome to the family business. In the upper room, at the very end, in John, he says, you know what I'm up to. You know what my father's doing. And he entrusts the mantle of the family business to us to go and proclaim and demonstrate the reign of God on earth. Prayer means growing in relationship and partnership 
with God. And N.T. Wright puts it this way, thinking about that word Father and what it means to be praying into those two little words, our Father. He says this, it's a great little book called The Lord and His Prayer. If you read it, you're going to basically know my sermon series, okay? So maybe wait till September or August, but anyway, here's a little snippet. Here's what N.T. Wright says. Saying our Father isn't just the boldness, the sheer cheek, okay, he's British, it isn't just the boldness, the sheer cheek of walking into the presence of the living and almighty God and saying, hey, Dad, it is the boldness, the sheer total risk of saying quietly, please may I too be considered an apprentice son. It means signing on for the kingdom of God. It is about growing in our relationship, making that the central and foremost part of our being. And it is also about partnering with the living God. And the last thing I'll say on praying this word, Father, before I want to leave it open briefly for you to just reflect back, to speak a question or a comment, something that's unanswered, like we did a few weeks back. So if you have anything, because I just can't cover it all, obviously, and I'm not that smart anyway, but if you have anything you'd like to reflect back, now's your chance in just a moment before I close with another story. The last thing I want to say before that is this. Don't miss the intimacy of that relationship. Even though Jesus didn't really invent the theological concept of God being the father of his people, Jesus says this curious thing in the midst of his deepest and darkest prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane. Also something that Pastor Kathy talked about two weeks ago, I believe. He prayed all alone, sweating great drops of blood, this strange word that he only mentions once in four Gospels, Abba. He says, Abba, Father, everything is possible for you. Take this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. I think we're going to explore that prayer later in this series, but that first word, Abba, is really, really curious. A lot of people want to make the connection of in Aramaic, which is the spoken language of Jesus. Y'all know the New Testament was written in the Greek language, but this is really weird. Jesus didn't speak Greek. He spoke Aramaic. So when you go and watch those Bible shows on the History Channel, they're speaking Aramaic. But when these things get written down, the universal language of that day was Greek, so they're writing this stuff down in Greek. But they included this word in the Greek New Testament, Abba, because it's such a strange and profound word. And some people think that it's like the first syllable of an Aramaic-speaking child. Ah, ba, 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 ba. And if you've heard a kid, you know that they ain't got to speak Aramaic. Our English babies over here do the same thing. But it's like the da-da. Now, that's a wonderful thought. We don't know if that's really what it means. Probably a better translation is my father. You're my father. So whether it's a dada or daddy, it is certainly an intimate, familiar way of saying dad. 
And when it came to being an apprentice of the Father's work to rescue the world, Jesus modeled what he taught and he prayed, My Father, you can do everything. Are we sure we have to do this? And so I want you to know, what does this mean for us? You have the freedom to address him at such an intimate and gut level, and you have the freedom to ask him anything. Why? Because you're a beloved child, and you're partnering with God's work in the world. There is nothing off limits in the presence of the Father. Paul puts it this way, and I'm going to close this off before I tell a story, and you can reflect back. Paul writes this in Galatians chapter 4. Because you are his sons, God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts. The spirit who calls out, Abba, Father. And listen to this. Think of Moses. So you are no longer a slave, but God's what? Child. And God has made you also an heir. What that means is you are just as privileged and just as beloved and just as pleasing to the Father as Jesus, his own son. And he's given you that spirit. Would you cry out, Abba, in your own heart? Any thoughts, questions, or comments before I close with a story? I want to send you with a story and a prayer. Brennan Manning, who's uh, one of my favorite authors, he's also gone to be with the Lord. He tells a story of a 78-year-old nun. So this is a woman that is married to the church, has given her life to the Catholic Church, and she's done so for decades and decades and decades. Brennan Manning was speaking at a retreat and in the middle of the night, he hears a knock on his door. And here before him is this 78-year-old woman. And she's broken and weeping. And she confesses to Brennan Manning that she was abused since she was five years old. Her whole childhood, she was abused by her own father. And this had so burdened and hurt her as it rightly would that for these decades she had served as a nun and a sister in this church, she would find any way around taking and receiving the bread and the wine in communion. Because it had so twisted and deepened, and every day, every time, every day they prayed the Our Father, and she could not bring herself to utter those words. And rightly so. Because the other disclaimer or hang-up is that our own fathers, how good or how not good, would pale in comparison to the loving Father that calls us beloved. But this was such a distortion of what that looked like. And she's confessing in the middle of the night to Brendan Manning. And so Brendan Manning says, would you humbly receive this and try this? He says, just give it 30 days. Pray these seven syllables. You breathe in and pray, Abba, and breathe out and say, I belong to you. To meet each moment of disgust and pain and hatred, to breathe in the word Abba, and to breathe out the statement of relationship 
I belong to you. Which is a bold thing to counsel this woman who for decades had been hurt and afflicted by that word, Abba, Father, Dad, Daddy. But she set to it. And for 30 days she prayed, day in, day out, breathing in, Abba, I belong to you. She wrote a letter after the 30 days to Brennan Manning. And she says, you know, it was really hard. But after some time, Abba began to break through and Abba began to heal me. Abba began to fit back together the broken pieces and even I've started the process of forgiving my father because of my relationship to my heavenly father. What would it look like for you to reconnect with your true identity as a beloved child who belongs to a father that loves you more than you could ever ask or imagine or even allow yourself to believe. Jesus taught you to pray something as radical as claiming him for yourself as father, my father. So as we come tonight to the table ourselves, would we sense an invitation to pray this prayer at its most basic level to find in our relationship with him this partnership that goes beyond all we could ever dream because we belong to a Father who loves us. Amen. Amen. Please say standing or will you stand to receive our benediction? May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. Amen. Now go in his peace.